0: God, you are the way maker. You are the one who makes a way when, there looks, when it looks like there is no way. And for those of us who have made you Lord of our lives, uh, we have literally staked our lives on that belief that you are the way maker. We thank you and we praise you for it. And now, God, we ask that you would speak to our hearts. We have worshiped, and now, God, we turn to hear a word from you. I pray that you would speak through me I pray that you would um, make the beauty of your gospel clear and articulate and compelling. I pray, God, that you would open our eyes to see and our ears to hear what it is that you have for us this morning from your word, which is literally the words of life. We ask that you would meet with us in this moment. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Good morning once again. Uh, We're in Mark, Mark 5, uh, starting in verse 21. And it's a long passage and I got a lot of words to say about it, so we're going to get going. Mark 5, starting in verse 21. This is what it says. It says, and when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him. And he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, this has been a big year for our family uh, because I have four children, and we, a uh, few weeks ago, sent our youngest child to kindergarten. It's a, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a crazy mixture of emotions, right? Like. Like gut wrenching sadness and overwhelming joy all mixed together. It's like crying while you're doing a happy dance. Uh, you know, some seasons of life, uh, you don't recognize when they've changed until they've already changed. It's like one day you look up and you realize you're in a new season and the old one has ended. Some seasons of life, like a graduation or a marriage or whatever it is, like you know the day that it changed. And that's, this is one of these. Like we know that we have entered into a completely new season of life. And one of the fun things about this new season of life is as our younger kids are getting older, is what it means for our family entertainment. And uh, what I mean by that is we are now able to watch movies as a family that previously we hadn't been able to because our younger kids were just too young to handle them. And so uh, this year, Beth and I have had a lot of fun. We don't watch that many movies, but a couple of them. Uh, We've had a lot of fun introducing our kids, all of them, collectively to some of the movies that really impacted us uh, as children. And primarily that was the Jesus film. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) That's what a pastor should say. Uh, Just last week we watched The Sandlot. So you don't have to clap for that in church, but you can. Uh, You're killing me, Smalls. Um, Earlier this year, we watched The Princess Bride together. Was a huge hit. You can clap for that. You you can clap for that. It was a huge hit with everyone, uh, except one part. The two youngest and actually Grandma, who was watching it with us, also was a little bit uncomfortable, uh, at the scene where the protagonist in The Princess Bride, his name is Wesley, has been captured by the evil Prince Humperdinck. And he wakes up in a dungeon that's filled with devices of torture. And when he asks the attendant, where am I? He says, what? You're in the pit of despair. And don't even think about trying to escape. And don't think about being rescued either. I think a lot of us are probably familiar with the pit of despair in The Princess Bride because a lot of us have seen that movie. What a lot of us may not be familiar with, and I actually wasn't until I did some research this week, is there is actually a real-life uh, real princess bride. That's not what I meant to say. There's actually a real-life pit of despair. Uh, back in the middle part of the last century, the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, There was a PhD researcher in psychology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison named Harry Harlow. And Harry Harlow was famous for being one of the first researchers to do research on monkeys. He was primarily interested in the child-parent bond between monkeys. But later in his career, he became very interested in the effects of isolation on monkeys And in order to study the effects of isolation on monkeys, Harry Harlow built a device. It was a stainless steel trough with angled walls and a lid that went on top. He would put baby or infant monkeys in that stainless steel trough for days, weeks, months, and sometimes years to study the effects of isolation on them. And he called that device, not joking, this is real, he called it the pit of despair, Now, if you are sitting here mildly appalled, as I am, it is generally regarded that his experiments in isolation for monkeys were some of the most unethical, cruel, and inhumane uh, experiments that we know of in recent memory. And predictably, the time that those monkeys spent in the pit of despair destroyed them. He gave them everything they needed, food, water, shelter. He cleaned up their waste. But the lack of touch... From their mother, their peers, and other monkeys, or anything else living, uh, quite literally destroyed them emotionally, physically, socially, and psychologically. What's interesting to know is that Harry Harlow, in the late 1960s, went through a terribly depressing episode at home. His wife had cancer and battled it for four years and ultimately died. And his peers and his students at the University of Wisconsin-Madison said he really became interested in these isolation studies after that happened to his wife. That pit of despair that he built was a physical manifestation of what he was feeling emotionally in his life, hopeless, helpless, isolated, and alone, and powerless to do what he felt like needed to be done for himself. He was in the pit of despair, and he built a pit of despair. So the question I want to ask this morning, I actually have two questions. The first one is this. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been to the pit of despair? Have you ever been in that place where you feel disconnected from life, where things feel so hopeless and helpless, where you feel isolated and alone, where you have come full full face forward recognizing that you do not have the power to do what you think needs to be done in your life. It might be, as it was for Harry Harlow, as the result of a death. It might be the death of a parent or a spouse or, God forbid, a child. It might be the breakdown of a marriage, your own or your parents or some other couple that you were close to. It might be the loss of a job. It might be a financial loss, that sure investment that you put all your money into actually wasn't as sure as you thought it was going to be. It might not be an acute event. It might just be that as you're moving through life, you begin to realize that your life looks so different from what you had hoped and expected it would be that you cannot help but descend into the pit of despair. Have you ever been there? And the second question I want to ask is, what do we do when we get there? What do we do when we find ourselves in the pit of despair? Is there hope in the pit of despair? How can we respond in the pit of despair? Somebody right now is like, hit us with a joke, PG. And I don't have one yet, but I'll get, we got some, hopefully we'll have some coming later. There is goodness coming. After this heavy introduction, please hang with me because there is goodness coming. Uh, We are back to our regularly scheduled programming. Started last week, didn't Elder Jason give us a fantastic message out of the first part of Mark chapter 5? We are back to this long-term study uh, that we are doing, taking a deep dive into the gospel of Mark. Uh, if you can remember, and I, just, I think this is a good moment to remind us of kind of where we're at uh, in the year and in our teaching. If you can remember, for those of you who've been with us, way back to the beginning of this year, when we were still doing church completely virtually online, 10 months ago, seems like 10 years ago. We started this year off with a series called Back to Basics. And that has kind of been the theme that we have been running with all of this year. And this study of the Gospel of Mark fits into that theme. Because, as we've talked about already, most scholars believe the Gospel of Mark is the first gospel that was ever written. It is the shortest gospel It is the simplest gospel. It is the easiest to understand. It is a fast-moving, action-oriented gospel about the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. And the reason for that is most scholars believe that the gospel of Mark is really the Apostle Peter's gospel. The Apostle Peter was one of Jesus' closest friends and followers. And Mark was his friend, his ministry partner, and his translator. And most scholars believe that Mark took down the stories that Peter had told about his times with Jesus and put it into this gospel called the Gospel of Mark. And if any one of Jesus' followers in the Bible was a guy who was about action, it was Peter. And that's why we're calling this series Let's Go. Because Mark's gospel, Peter's gospel according to Mark, is a gospel that is all about that action boss. It is a reminder and a call to all of us that following Jesus is more than about what we believe in our heads and what happens in our hearts. It is not less than that. Those are critical pieces of what it means to follow Jesus, but it is also about what we do with our hands. As we come to the text we're going to study today, we are in the midst of four stories that Mark Mark gives us about the life of Jesus that are demonstrating Jesus' power. If you remember way back before the values and vision series that we did, the last sermon I preached was on Jesus calming the storm. And that was to demonstrate Jesus power over nature. Last week Jesus Jesus last week Jason talked about Jesus healing the man possessed by demons. It demonstrated Jesus power over the spiritual realm and over demons. And today we get two more stories demonstrating Jesus power, his power over sickness and his power over death. What we have today is what scholars call a Markin sandwich. Sounds delicious. (laughs) Mark likes to do this in his gospel. He takes a story about something that Jesus did and he inserts another one in the middle and he makes a strong theological point because of it. And so, as we come to the text I just read, this Markin sandwich, I want to draw out three things. This is the first thing I want to draw out we will all visit the pit of despair. We will all visit the pit of despair. It, it, I'm telling you, it gets better, but just hang with me for now. I'm just trying to preach what I think this text says. Uh, pick me up again in verse 22. Actually, wait. So last week, Jesus healed a man possessed with demons on the western shore. That's here, for, I think, for you all. On the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, rather, excuse me, the eastern shore. Sorry. The eastern shore, which is the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee, Verse 21 tells us he has now come back to the Jewish side, the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. And this is what happens. Pick me up in verse 22. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. So let's talk about this guy, Jairus, ruler of the synagogue. Here's what that means he was not a priest, he was not a scribe, he was not a professional in the religious system of Judaism of that day. He was a layman, he was bivocational. Those who were called rulers of the synagogues were people who had full-time real jobs in the community, but they were so highly respected and so highly thought of in their community that the elders of the community had appointed them to oversee the workings of the house of worship in their town. So as ruler of the synagogue, Jairus was in charge of all things related to the synagogue. He was in charge of the building, the facilities, he was in charge of the scrolls of scripture and worship that they had there. He was also in charge of the worship services, finding people to pray, to read scripture, and to preach. But again, he was not a professional in the religious establishment. What that most likely means is that he was highly respected. He was probably highly successful, and he was probably pretty wealthy. Jairus was on the upper crust of society in the town that he lived in. But Jairus has a problem. His daughter is sick, and she is on death's doorstep. Despite his place in life, Jairus is in the pit of despair. Now, Jesus agrees to go with him. They begin going to Jairus' house. And then pick me up in verse 25. A crowd follows, and then we're told this. We're introduced to a new character in the story. Verse 25. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse recognize this, this woman who is sick and gyrus are foils. They are complete opposites. She is a woman in a male-dominated society, so right off the bat, she is already less than. It is not an exaggeration to say this, this issue of bleeding that she has had for 12 years has completely ruined her life. We're told in the text that she has spent all of her money, so she is poor. She is a poor woman and... Almost, maybe most critically, the Old Testament law made it really clear that a woman who was bleeding in this way was ceremonially unclean. So for 12 years, she has not been allowed to enter the synagogue for worship, the center of religious and cultural life for a Jew. If she had gone to Jerusalem, she would not have been able to enter the temple. And for anyone who were to come into contact with her, they too would become unclean. And so she has become a social outcast. She is, if Jairus is here in society, she is here. They are complete opposites, but she also has a problem. And she is also in the pit of despair. Two situations, two circumstances, two very different people, one common theme I believe as we enter into this story, what Mark is communicating to us is that it doesn't matter where you are in life, you are going to have to go through some garbage sometimes. All of us will visit the pit of despair. A number of years ago now, I think probably like eight or nine, I could do the math if I stopped to think about it, uh, my family and I had the opportunity to spend a week of summer's vacation at Hilton Head Island in South Carolina. We were living in Ohio at the time, so it was a car ride for us. Uh, A long car ride, but a car ride. Hilton Head is an island off the southern part of South Carolina, very close to Savannah, Georgia. Uh, People from all over the eastern part of our country go there for vacation in the summer. It is a vacation island, but it is an island. And what that means is there is one bridge on and off Hilton Head Island, which on Tuesday at 2.30 in the afternoon is probably not that big of a deal. But on Saturday morning, when everyone has completed their week or two weeks of vacation, or if you work in tech, you're 47 weeks of vacation, (laughs) everyone is trying to get off the island at the same time. And so it creates a bottleneck at that bridge. And as we were leaving Hilton Head, I don't know if it was 8 in the morning, 8.30 in the morning, what should have taken us 15 minutes to get to the interstate, took us like an hour and a half. Because everyone is trying to get off the island at the same time. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, if you're driving a brand new Beamer or a 20 year old Civic. It doesn't matter if you're old or young, a follower of Jesus or an atheist. You got to go over that bridge to get off the island. And the same is true in our lives. It doesn't matter who you are, old or young, rich or poor brand new Beamer or 20-year-old Civic, follower of Jesus or Atheist, we are all going to visit the pit of despair at some point and in some way. If you haven't been there yet, I'd like to quote one of my favorite modern philosophers, Matthew McConaughey, (laughs) just keep living. We're all going to visit the pit of despair. It, It might be a death. It might be the breakdown of a relationship. It might be the loss of a job. It might be the loss of a child. We will all come to a place where we're not sure if we can continue finding hope in the circumstances that we are in. And what is so crushing about the pit of despair is what we've talked about already. And it is, it is coming full force, full face knowledge with the fact that we cannot do for ourselves. We are powerless to do for ourselves what needs to be done. We're all going to visit the pit of despair. Now, that's enough of that. Let's find some hope. The second thing I want us to see in this text, or the second, the question I want to answer with the second point is this: What do we do in the pit of despair? And it is this: In the pit, do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, only believe. So Jesus and Jairus are on their way to his house, and this woman comes up behind him. She risks everything to touch him, knowing that actually she's unclean. When she touches Jesus, that would make him ceremonially unclean. She's so desperate, it's worth it. And she touches him. And the text tells us that immediately she is healed. And Jesus senses that power has gone out of him. And he spins around on his heels. And he says, who touched me? And his disciples are like, seriously, bro? Like like 50 people have touched you in the last 10 seconds. And she knows that she's caught. She's caught. And the the text says, with fear and trembling, she comes up to him and tells him what has happened. And look with me at verse 34. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Can we recognize what has happened? She was so desperate. She was in so much despair that she was willing to risk anything to get to the one who she thought could help her. Do you notice what Jesus says has healed her? Her faith. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. She is a picture of faith in action. It's the one thing to believe. It's another thing to act on it. And she has acted on it, and Jesus has done for her what she could not do for herself. Now, this is where it gets good. So while he is still speaking, verse 35, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? So what we have going on here is something a little bit like John chapter 11. If you remember John chapter 11, Jesus finds out that his friend Lazarus is dead. And what does he do? He stays where he is two days longer. It's like, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Similar situation here. This this precious daughter of Jairus is on death's door. And on the way, Jesus gets sidetracked. And apparently what it looks like is that was enough for him to miss his window of opportunity. And these messengers come from Jairus' house and they basically say, don't bother Jesus any longer. It's too late. Your daughter is dead. Now, can I tell you what I wish happened in this story? Now, I'm not saying I know better how to write scripture than the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying that at all. I wish there was a verse 35.5. And here's why. Because Mark does not give us Jairus' reaction when he gets the news. I think, particularly because a lot of us know the ending of the story, actually all of us do because I just read it. Hopefully you remember what happened. Uh, It's easy to kind of just skip over these couple of verses and sanitize them. Like, here come these people. Your daughter is dead. Jesus is like, don't fear and believe. All right, let's go raise her from the dead. I have a 12-year-old daughter. It was hard for me this week to to make my mind go to the place of what I would feel like if I were in Jairus' shoes There are some of us here today who have lost children. You know what it feels like to receive the news that Jairus has received. And so I just wish that there was a verse 35.5 that communicated to us the desperation, the new level of pit of despair that Jairus went to when these messengers come from his house and tell him his daughter is dead. Because check this out we don't know how long she's been sick might have been a couple days, a couple weeks, a couple months. might have been a couple years. But no matter how sick she has been, for how long, there has always been hope. As long as she is alive for Gyrus, there is hope that this can be turned around. There is hope that something can be done. There is hope that she can be healed. But when the news comes that she has died, what does that mean? There's no more hope. I saw a quote one time. I tried to find it this week. I couldn't find who said it. If, I'm, I don't mean to plagiarize, but someone said it. I saw it somewhere one time. It said, the problem with death is that it is so final. But here's what we got to recognize. When things look hopeless to us, if Jesus is involved, there is still hope. When things look hopeless to us, if Jesus is involved, there is still hope. So these messengers come from Jairus's house. They tell him, "Your daughter is dead." Is, is dead? And I'm just, I'm just, um, I'm stepping out on a little bit shaky ground, adding to God's word. But I would say, and Jairus melted because at that moment all hope was lost. And what does Jesus do? He turns to Jairus and he gives him five words in English. Five words. He wasn't speaking in English. Verse 36. Do not fear, only believe. Number one command in scripture, not love God, not obey God, don't fear. And that word that he uses for believe, we lose it in the English. In Greek, it's the same word as faith in verse 34. When he says to the woman, your faith has healed you, he is saying the same thing here. using the same word for Jairus here. And it's in the present tense in Greek. You all have heard me say this before. What is the present tense in Greek? It is a continual action. It is something that is happening over and over and over again. So Jesus is saying to Jairus, do not fear. Keep on believing. Continually believe. Always believe. And this is what I think is so powerful about this statement that Jesus gives to Jairus. What is the context? He has just healed this woman. Scholars, many scholars believe that she was just as close to death as Jairus' daughter was if she has been bleeding for 12 years. And so when Jesus turns to Jairus and he says, do not fear, only believe, what he is saying is what I just did for this woman, I can do for you. If I did it for her, I can do it for you. If her faith meant something, your faith will mean something too. Do not fear, only believe. Uh, One of the things in my life that I have found to be most helpful when I am afraid of something is, is, and oftentimes I'll say don't play the comparison game, but sometimes when you're afraid, playing the comparison game actually helps, and this is what I mean by that. When I have been afraid of something, when I can look at other people who are doing the thing that I am afraid of, I actually can get a lot of confidence from that. So my first job out of college, as we've talked about, was selling hardwood lumber in Buffalo, New York. I didn't know anything about Buffalo. I didn't know anything about New York. I didn't know anything about hardwood lumber, trees, forests, wood, lumber mills, any of that stuff. I knew how to play pickup basketball and video games. I got A's in both all eight semesters of college. I was terrified. I didn't know what I was doing. I was in way over my head. But every day I was working with a bunch of people who were doing the thing that I didn't think I could do. And though they were a little bit older and had a little bit more experience, they looked like me, they talked like me, they put their pants on the same way as me, at least I assume, I never saw that happen, but I assume that they did. They had to brush their teeth like me, they had to sleep like me, and I found a lot of confidence by looking at them and not in an arrogant way, but simply saying, if they can do it, I can do it. If those kids can ride that roller coaster, I can ride that roller coaster. If, if that guy can get a girl like that, I can get a girl like that. And I did. I got a better one. If those people can be pastors, maybe I can be a pastor. And that is... (laughs) I think that's the critical message that Mark is giving us here in this passage. What do we do when we're in the pit of despair? When Jesus says, do not fear, only believe, it's like that's easy for you to say, God... It's pretty hard to do when you're actually walking through or sitting in the pit of despair. And Mark is telling us, if he did it for them, he can do it for you. When you're in the pit of despair, what can you do? It's the only thing you can do. Don't fear and keep on believing. We need to play journey on repeat. Actually, you only need to play it once and it will be in your head for the next week. (laughs) Don't stop believing. In the pit of despair do not fear, keep on believing. Somebody's there today and you need to hear that. If he did it for them, he can do it for you. Last thing I want us to draw out of this passage is this. So uh, we're all going to visit the pit of despair at some point. Some of us will have return trips. (laughs) In the pit, do not fear, only believe. And then the last thing I want us to draw out of this text is this. Jesus' touch changes everything. Jesus' touch changes everything. So they get the news that his daughter is dead. Jairus' daughter is dead. Uh, Jesus and Jairus and his disciples continue on to his house. He gets there. There's already already a crowd gathered. They're mourning. I love this. Jesus walked into the middle of the wailing and the weeping. Verse 39 He's like, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. What looks final to us is not final to God. And they laughed at him. Verse 31, they go, into, they go into the room. He takes the parents with and his three closest disciples. He goes into the room and he says, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, Arise. Dalitha Kumi is Aramaic, and Mark gives us a translation here because he assumed many of his original audience would not know Aramaic, and so they needed to know what was being said there. What is very interesting to note, and several scholars say this, is it can mean little girl, or it can also mean little lamb. How precious is that? How precious is God's heart towards his children in the midst of their suffering and despair? Jesus says to our little lamb, I say to you, Arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age and they were immediately overcome with amazement. The compassionate touch of Jesus changes everything. What did Jairus want from Jesus? Verse 23, come and lay your hands on her. What did the woman who was bleeding want from Jesus? If I touch even his garments, how did Jesus heal this little girl? Verse 41, taking her by the hand the compassionate touch of Jesus changes everything. And just one more thing I want to draw out of this text uh, before we head into the, the conclusion. One more exegetical point. Can we recognize, and we've talked about this a little bit already, both of these daughters were untouchable. According to Jewish law and, and regulation, according to the Mosaic law in the Old Testament, a woman who was hemorrhaging was ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. So was a corpse it's why in the story of uh, the Good Samaritan, it's why the priest and the Levite cross to the other side of the road. Because if that guy is dead and he looks like he is dead and they touch him, they will become ceremonially unclean and unable to fulfill their duties in the temple. They were untouchables. But Jesus is like, I am the one who touches the untouchable. If, they were, if, if, if anyone were to touch either of them, The uncleanness of that girl, that woman or that girl, would have been transferred to them. And they themselves would have become ceremonially unclean. But Jesus touches them. And he takes their uncleanness onto himself. And he transfers his cleanness onto them. There's a verse in Exodus. uh, Exodus 29, 37. God is talking about the rules for the priests and the temple, and this is what he says. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it, and the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. Whatever touches Jesus Christ shall become clean because the touch of Jesus changes everything. It is what Harry Harlow's monkeys needed they had all the basic necessities of life, food, water, shelter. They were able to sleep. They had their waste cleaned up, but they did not have touch. They did not have the touch of their mother or their peers or the other monkeys, and they were devastated by it. And, and friends, we are the same way. We can have everything we need for physical life, but if we do not have the touch of Jesus, we cannot exit the pit of despair. When we are there, We look for all kinds of things to help us out. When we are in the pit, we think that we need another drink or another pair of shoes or another vacation or another husband or another wife or another job or another house or another car. Those are all wants. And most of them are not going to change your situation. What we need is Jesus. What we need is his touch what we need is the one who has power over nature and over demons and over sickness and over death because we in and of ourselves are powerless to do what needs to be done. And it is only by the touch of Jesus that we can be saved. Amen. The touch of Jesus changes everything. As we wrap this up, I just want to leave us, I want to, I want to leave us thinking about this, this thought. What is, what is the true pit of despair? What is the what is the deepest, darkest, lowest level of the pit of despair? It's death. And I'm not talking about physical death. I'm talking about spiritual death. I'm talking about separation from God. I'm talking about not I'm I'm, I'm talking about trying to save ourselves in our own power. We can't even keep ourselves healthy. And what I think is so powerful about these two stories, this Mark and Sandwich in Mark chapter five, is that it is not just the story of a woman who was bleeding and a little girl who was raised from the dead. It is our story. This this is about us. Because because the the resurrection of this little girl, the language that Mark uses as we get to the end of this passage that we just read, it is the language of resurrection. This resurrection of this little lamb was pointing to a greater resurrection that was going to happen just a few years later. Another lamb was going to be dead. This time the lamb of God. And just as by the power of God in that little bedroom somewhere on the shore of Galilee, she was raised from the dead in a dark cave somewhere outside of Jerusalem, three days later the lamb of God was raised from the dead. And in doing so, defeated sin and death forever. And I think sometimes we think about Jesus' resurrection from the dead and we think of it outside of ourselves. But for those of us who have had his touch, for those of us who have bowed the knee and made him Lord of our lives, his resurrection is not just his story, it is our story. This is us. This is pointing to us. This is our hope. This is where we find our hope. In the pit of despair, we may not get the good things we want in this life, but there is a promise of another life. It's not just his story, it is ours. One day I'm going to die. And for all of you who are left here, it is going to look to you like death. But do not be deceived. Because I have been touched by Jesus. What looks to you like death looks to him like a nap. And he will come to me. And he will take me by the hand. And he will say, Little lamb, I say to you, arise. And I will. The wages of sin is death. But the touch of God is life. The valley of despair, the pit of despair, is no match for the power of God. Do not fear. Only believe. Let's pray. God, we know that there are seasons of this life where it is hard to find hope. We thank you for the we thank you for how raw and honest your word is to us that you give us stories like this giving us examples of two people who were at the end of themselves who were at the bottom level of the pit of despair and we can take hope in seeing what you did for them because if you did it for them we know that you can do it for us as well May the truth of your power rest on each of us today. May we know that even when it looks like things are hopeless, there is still hope if you are involved. And as Psalm 34 says, 34, eight says, you are near to the brokenhearted and the crushed in spirit. God, I pray for someone today who needs to feel that you are near. Thank you for who you are and thank you for what you have done. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to finish our service with uh, a song of response. I would invite you as you sing these words uh, to sing them as worship to God but also to do any business with God that you might need to do between now and being finished with this service. If you are in the pit of despair today, I pray that you will feel hope as we close out this service. If you don't know who Jesus is, if you have not made him Lord of your life, if you are like, I would like the touch of Jesus in my life, there's no better time than to do that now. I'd love to talk to you about it after service, if that's you. Let's worship, and I'll be back up to close up our service. bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace until we meet again or until our Savior comes and then forever. Amen. You're loved and you're prayed for and you're sent.